Hi there, this is Austin Hetzler, the pastor of Christ the Rock Church of Elyria, Ohio. We at Christ the Rock are humbled and grateful to be a part of your sanctification today as you listen to this sermon. But at the same time, we want to encourage you to be a member of a good local church and not to allow online sermons to replace the local church and to benefit from the life of that church and to give your spiritual gifts back to that church. Having said that, our website is www.christrockchurch.com. If you go there, you can find sermons, blogs, and other resources as well as our location and service times. You can also listen to the sermons on Bible Thumping Wingnut, Podbean, iTunes, Google Play Music, iHeartRadio, Spotify, and Stitcher. I, along with the membership of Christ the Rock Church, pray that this sermon will be a blessing to you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that you give us grace as we see once more in the book of Acts the account of your people, you keeping your church pure through your appointed servants. We thank you that we do get protection from you, from our enemies. We thank you that you are a bulwark and a shield and that you are there to thwart the efforts of those who oppose your son, but who appeal to us in pretense. And we thank you for the Phillips of the church, Lord. We thank you that though they are rare in our day, they do still exist. We do pray that you raise up more of them. I pray that you give us great clarity in this time as we study this account of Simon Magus. We pray that we would glean what you have for us. We pray for a work of the Spirit without whom this is a vain enterprise. We pray these things in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen. Today's study is a short tale of protagonist, or you might say hero, versus the antagonist, or you might say villain. And this is found in a mini-drama, and this mini-drama is found in Acts chapter 8, verses 4 through 24. Uh, the antagonist in this account is a man named Simon, called Simon Magus. And Magus is derived originally from the term Magi. And these were first the priests of the Medo-Persians, but really by the time of Acts 8, it had been adopted into the vernacular to be just kind of shorthand for someone who was associated with the magical arts. And the magical arts amounted to an amalgamation of practicing the disciplines of science, scientism, astronomy, astrology, mathematics, occultic practices, and still more beyond those things. The product of all these ingredients, though, for Simon was the public perception that he was a man of great power. But while I don't believe that perception was necessarily reality, brother is he about to encounter real power. And that makes this account an excellent New Covenant parallel of Moses in Exodus, who was there acting as the protagonist, and Pharaoh's magicians, who were there acting as the antagonist. Yes, they could conjure a little something, but their parlor trick divinations were trounced by the real thing. Likewise, Simon has seen a form of power. He has even practiced a form of power, but nothing like what's happening through Philip. 
who is the protagonist in our account today, and nothing like what's happening through the apostles who will also be involved before we are through. But this account is more than just the story of Philip and Simon Magus. It is an exposition of authentic faith as it is juxtaposed against the fraudulent variety. And we will learn of this and more verse by verse, exegeting and applying as we go. Uh, This is a story, and so the best way to tell a story, generally speaking, is from the beginning to the end, and so that's how we'll handle this. We're going to pick up in Acts 8, verse 1 for context, and then really start to bite in in verse 4. So Acts 8, Saul was in hearty agreement with putting him, meaning Stephen, to death, And on that day, a great persecution began against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. By the way, let me say the the apostles are not treated as Stephen was treated only because the Sanhedrin has such great fear of doing something like that with these men because of the sway that they had with the people. Stephen was a nobody, so they could kill him. They can't do that with the apostles without tremendous social consequences. Verse 2, some devout men buried Stephen and made loud lamentation over him, but Saul began ravaging the church, entering house after house and dragging off men and women. He would put them in prison. Therefore, those who had been scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and began proclaiming Christ to them. Now, Philip, of course, is not new to us in our study. We first encountered him In Acts 6, he was one of the men who was appointed to help remediate the situation with the Hellenistic widows who had been uh, inadvertently cast aside. He's a man of great competence, therefore, and that's reflected in his choosing because that was a situation, as we said, that could have easily resulted in a church split. But here, as we encounter him again for a second time, he's not waiting tables. He is rather evangelizing. Now, Timothy is told to do an evangelist's work. In addition to Timothy, all the apostles are seen doing this work as well, as many uh, lay people are, as every Christian is supposed to. But the title of evangelist is conferred upon exactly one man in all of the New Testament, and that is Philip. And that will occur later in the book of Acts in chapter 21, verse 8. And so because of this, Philip is very instructive for us as the sole bearer of that title, because in our day, the evangelist has gone the way of the dodo and the saber-toothed tiger, which is really something, considering that he is one of Paul's essential elements of a healthy church that he gives in Ephesians chapter 4. Nevertheless, he is the woolly mammoth of church officers, which is not to say that we do not still have many pretenders to the title. Indeed, there are many. And they exist in largely two categories. There is first category, which is Big Eva, and I would include in this uh, fundamentalist churches, the kind of which I grew up in. And then the second category, we'll say, are Reformed-ish. And I'll speak to the first category here, uh, Big Eva. Here's how they're generally defined. They have, as the saying goes, ten suits and ten sermons. In other words, they are the most biblically shallow teachers you will ever meet. It simply cannot go deeper. They don't have that gear. They don't have those roots. And so if somebody should actually get genuinely converted through their preaching, better hope and pray that the Lord sends somebody else to disciple them because they cannot teach them all that Christ has commanded 
them because you can't teach what you don't know. And again, they simply don't have the depth. Basically, all that they know can be condensed to the back of a business card-sized gospel track. That's it. They also speak of sin as if it were mistakes and repentance as if it were forgiveness, and they almost never speak of hell. They further promise the love of God to those who abide in His wrath, even as they are under His wrath. They are also blasphemers because they pronounce certain salvation upon their hearers as those hearers recite a magical incantation called the sinner's prayer as though the power of salvation was theirs to wield and theirs to grant. They have become God. They have supplanted the third person of the Trinity. They also call down revival at will. They can schedule it. The apostles had to wait 10 days in laborious prayer But these snake charmers can play their flute and the Holy Spirit of God will rise out of the basket at their command, essentially. Because of all these things, they produce hordes of false converts. Not that any of them care because it's not like they stay at any church longer than two weeks anyhow, so they will never be forced to confront the consequences of their heretical teaching. They can continue to just give report after report after report to whoever finances them that they saw... 5,000 people saved this year. Even though nobody followed up and that uh, figure is complete nonsense. So that's the big Eva distortion of the evangelists. But the Reformed-ish category of fake evangelists are characterized largely by, first, zero meaningful concern for the authority of the local church. If they are attached to a local church, generally it is one in a long line of churches, and the one that they're at now is just the latest in that long line. They will often uh, purport to love the local church because they don't know that they have to, because if they don't, they'll be discovered as frauds very, very quickly, but their willingness to move on from one church to another as soon as they are confronted over anything tells a very different story. Indeed, they have a very low view of the church. They're also characterized often by a shameless begging for financial support from gullible strangers online. One of the reasons why they must do this is because if they are a part of a church, that church knows better than to fund them. And one of the reasons for this is because they are typically lazy. They evangelize maybe two short days a week. And I mean short days, maybe three to four hours on each of those days. But while they do very little work, relatively speaking, in the area of evangelism, they are ever vigilant to post their evangelism online because they have to, because those little old ladies that they're duping into financing them will not continue to give them checks if they don't. They are also characteristically shallow in their understanding of Scripture. This is something that they share in common with their big Eva counterparts. But neither category shares this in common with Philip, as we will see. Now, let me give you a little warning here, a little caveat. Because of YouTube and podcasts, these men can often regurgitate vernacular that they don't actually understand, and that can trick a lot of people. But when it comes down to it, after years of ministry, they still only know the taste of milk. They also condemn all who do not evangelize as they do. Because in reality, for them, pride is all and Christ is nothing. And finally, it's a very interesting point, one that I have 
observed over and over and over again, almost down to the man and woman. They have no converts after many years of ministry. Now, is this possible for faithful ministers? Yes, absolutely. You probably know stories of missionaries who have been overseas for decades and nothing really happens and then the Lord breaks the dam loose. But if this is universally or nearly universally true of a certain category of ministers in the church age when Jesus said that he will build his church, something's wrong. There should be fruit. And with many of these people, there just isn't. Because the Lord is not blessing because they're not really doing it for the Lord. They're doing it for the sake of their pride. So then in light of these counterfeits, will the real evangelist please stand up Well, I'm glad that you asked. Yes, he's about to. Continuing in verse 6. The crowds with one accord were giving attention to what was said by Philip as they heard and saw the signs which he was performing. For in the case of many who had unclean spirits, they were coming out of them shouting with a loud voice and many who had been paralyzed and lame were healed so that there was much rejoicing in that city. Now, Philip has become a nexus of divine power like Stephen before him. And like Stephen before him, he is further proof that the apostles are not the proprietors of these abilities. God is. But through the apostles, he has given them to other men, though they are not exclusive to them. Because again, the church is not an elitist establishment and God is not a respecter of persons. Now, because I've spoken to the temporary nature of these gifts numerous times, I'm not going to revisit that here. But I would like you to take special note of the description of Philip's supernatural acts. Now, these things that he's doing, they are undoubtedly miracles, correct? What else would you call a demoniac being liberated or many? A paralytics being healed, the lame being made to walk. And yet that is not what they are referred to, not miracles. What was Luke's very intentional description of these things? Look again to verse 6. They heard and saw the signs which he was performing. Why designate these things as signs and not miracles and not wonders as they are referred to elsewhere? Well, because miracles and wonders are only the what. To say that they are signs, though, answers the issue of the what and the why. A sign points to something else, doesn't it? It puts you on a path to arrive at a certain location. The sign is not the end of the matter. These things then point to something else, and that something else was already stated in verses 4 and 5. Those who had been scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and began proclaiming Christ to them. Miracles are the signs, and Christ is the destination. Another way to understand the nature of these signs and their intent is that they were instruments used by God to draw his elect physically, that they might hear his gospel, that he might, through that gospel, draw souls spiritually. And given that we are talking about evangelism through the example of the only man called an evangelist, I am very, very happy that this issue has come up. Because in Philip's example, we're reminded once more that if what you are drawing people to is supernatural i.e. salvation, which certainly is, then what you draw them with also needs to be supernatural. God's power to heal physically was manifest 
so that the much greater issue of God's power to heal souls might be manifest through these lesser miracles, which acted as signs that pointed to the much greater miracle of conversion. And so also that the messengers would be validated to the end that their message would be validated as well. But you may say, well, you know, in our day, we don't have the power to heal as they did, so perhaps we should turn to something else. But again, whatever else you would turn to would need to be supernatural. Otherwise, it could not draw people to something that was supernatural. And there is nothing supernatural about the carnivals that happen outside of American churches to entice the unchurched to join them. But the good news is that we, as the people of God in the present day, are not without supernatural signs to draw the fathers yet unconverted elect. I'd like to remind you here of three very briefly. The first supernatural draw that we have is the gospel. And you may say, yes, but I have heard you, pastor, say many times that the gospel of Christ repels unbelievers. Well, yes and no. The gospel absolutely repels those that the Spirit of God is not drawing. But the gospel pulls in those that the Spirit of God is drawing. I think of Brad's testimony. I remember Brad coming to Bible studies that I held at at first Dunkin' Donuts, and after he got converted, he recalled that time, remembered it, and said, that was the hardest message I'd ever heard in my life. I don't really understand why he kept coming, but I did. Well, you know the reason why he kept coming. Because the Holy Spirit was drawing him. Was drawing him into a relationship. That message is supernatural. There is no other message like it. Keep using it and keep it supernatural. And keep it on the work of Christ and not the work of men, and that will be accomplished. The second supernatural draw that we have is conversion itself. Our conversion. When you get converted, you become a living, breathing gospel tract to all who knew you before you were converted. Now, you always need to give the gospel verbally, but these people are going to see it written all over your life. They know you B.C. and A.D. Something's got to account for that because it doesn't happen in the natural realm. Moralism happens and moral reform But the most powerful tool that you have very often is your own testimony, so give it. And the third supernatural draw that I'll give you here briefly is our love for each other. You know that this is our apologetic. This does not exist in the world. It is truly and completely unique. Let your light shine before men. Let them see the way that you love the other people in your congregation, that they may understand that there is a category of love in here that does not exist out there. But remember, the rule is still that entrance into a supernatural state requires a supernatural draw, which is not to say that God doesn't arrange natural natural circumstances to put people where they need to be in order to hear the gospel or see our love. Certainly he does. But those natural circumstances amount to the venue, not the draw. So why don't we use entertainment to draw unbelievers into the kingdom? Bouncy houses, carnivals, plays, etc. Because all these things are natural. And even if we wanted to use them, the natural cannot transcend the supernatural. And there are supernatural boundaries here. They are dead in their trespasses and sins. In order to bring them over that boundary, you have 
to have the power of the Spirit. And also because these things are, are deceptive. Now, the unbeliever gets upset when you give them the gospel, when you warn them of the wrath to come. The truth is they don't have the right to be upset about that if you give that to them in the workplace or the street corner or in your house or even in their house. The earth is our God's footstool. Therefore, we have a right to bring up that conversation at all times and in all circumstances. doesn't mean there isn't prudence that doesn't need to be brought to bear, but that general principle is absolute. However, if you deliberately establish an entertainment context and then you change that later and make it about something else, isn't it kind of understandable that those people would feel duped and used? If you go to a carnival, you don't expect to hear about hell, do you? And then you might understandably get the, you know, I thought you just wanted to be my friend for the sake of being my friend, when in reality you wanted to proselytize me. I wish you'd have just been honest about your intentions. So if you're here today and you're an unbeliever, let me be honest with you. The truth is that Christians shouldn't want to be anybody's friend just for the sake of being their friend. Am I saying that all human relationships, no matter how superficial they may be or meaningful and dear to us, are just a means to a greater end? That is absolutely what I am saying. Yes. I don't want to be your friend for merely the sake of friendship. I want to be your friend to the much greater end of glorifying God, which impels me to give you the gospel. That's the whole reason I have friends That's the reason that God has even given me the relationship that I have with my children and my wife. To his glory through the gospel. But I tell you what, in the end it all works out in the wash anyhow because you're going to hell without Christ. Therefore, I can't rightly be a friend to you at all if I don't give you the gospel, can I? But instead of misrepresenting my intentions and me being unfaithful and leaving you feeling used... I'm just going to make this the context of every relationship that I have from the beginning. Understand that we are fishers of men. And if you have come across our path, you have effectively swum into our little rivers. So we are going to, per verse 5, proclaim Christ to you with the utmost sincerity and transparency because it, along with our love, is the only lure with which to fish men the Lord allows us to use. Continuing on in verse 9. Now there was a man named Simon who formerly was practicing magic in the city and astonishing the people of Samaria, claiming to be someone great. And they all, from smallest to greatest, were giving attention to him, saying, this man is what is called the great power of God. And they were giving him attention because he had for a long time astonished them with his magic arts. Now, the first thing to understand slash remember is that these people are Samaritans. And so this means that while they share many things in common with the Jews, they do not share all things in common with them. They have in many ways developed independent strains of theology and religious practices and customs. And along these lines, they have their own preferred title for God, and it was according to their own midrash, the powerful one. So then that makes Simon the power of the powerful one. In essence, Simon was already, by the time of the events in Acts 8, a messianic figure. That's what's being conveyed to you. This was an age where everybody was looking for Messiah. 
It wasn't just the Jews. It was the Samaritans as well. And you can see that reflected in the conversation with the woman at the well. She's looking for Messiah. Everybody is. And amongst the Samaritans, Simon had established himself as a unique bridge between God and man. So understand, he is ontologically, or in terms of his being, the great power of God. He doesn't merely practice it. He is it in their eyes. Now, let me give you a spoiler alert here. Simon is going to be remembered by the church fathers as effectively the arch-heretic of his age. The fathers are clear that Simon claimed to be God incarnate and also that he was the progenitor of what would become full-blown Gnosticism by the time of the second century. They referred to him as the father of Gnosticism. Simon was such a significant heretic that Christian lore, Christian mythology would grow out of his life. He would be represented as the perpetual enemy of Peter and ultimately Christ. But what is not lore or myth is that Simon was leading the Samaritans straight to hell. Verses 10 and 11 again, they all from smallest to greatest were giving attention to him saying, this man is what is called the great power of God. And they were giving him attention because he had for a long time astonished them with his magic arts. Simon is a satanic mirror image of Christ. Here's Christ, here's Simon. In a similar manner as the Egyptian magicians were a satanic mirror image of Moses, you might even say that Simon was a forerunner, perhaps, of the eschatological Antichrist, claiming his power, totally maligning his nature. That is until, continuing in verse 12, but when they believed Philip preaching the good news, about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ. They were being baptized, men and women alike. Even Simon himself believed. And after being baptized, he continued on with Philip. And as he observed signs and great miracles taking place, he was constantly amazed. And so it is that the firstborn son of the devil becomes a son of God. Well, that would make for a great story, but unfortunately that is very much not the case. And we will discover this as we continue. Pick up again in verse 14. Now, when the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit, for he had not yet fallen upon any of them. They had simply been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they began laying their hands on them, and they were receiving the Holy Spirit. Now, as we have covered in the past, post-Acts, and even by about the middle of the book of Acts, middle towards the end, salvation and baptism of the Spirit occur simultaneously. This is a transitional book in a transitional time, and each time that the gospel converts a new people group, that new people group has what is effectively a Pentecost of its own. It's going to happen a couple more times here before we're through. And so as it occurred with the Jews in Acts 2, it now happens with the half-Jew, half-Assyrians of Acts 8. And this requires in uh, the plan of God direct apostolic authority especially given the historic antipathy between Jews and Samaritans. Church greatly benefits from having the seal of the apostles placed upon these people so that they understand that those that they have hated because they were not pure bloods have now become their pure brothers and sisters in Christ by the blood of Jesus. And so Peter and John have been sent. Now let me give you an aside here. And though it is an aside, it's a fascinating and glorious one. Note the irony of John's presence in Samaria right now to do this. Because if you recall, it was John who in the Gospels asked Jesus for permission to do what to these people? 
to rain down fire and brimstone to commit genocide upon them? And whether you remember this incident or not, Luke certainly does. Luke 9, 51 through 56. When the days were approaching for his ascension, he was determined to go to Jerusalem and he sent messengers on ahead of him and they went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make arrangements for him, but they did not receive him because he was traveling toward Jerusalem. When his disciples James and John saw this, they said, Lord, do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them? But he, Jesus, turned and rebuked them and said, You don't know what kind of spirit you're of. For the Son of Man did not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them, and they went on to another village. They moved down the road to another hotel. Now, hospitality is certainly a virtue, but genocide seems like kind of a steep penalty for not giving it. Nevertheless, here's John back in the same place, but this time is here to validate and advance revival in the people he previously sought to slaughter. And I think the idea that this irony is lost on John and Peter is just nonsense. I think this is the nature of the conversation that they are having as they travel from Jerusalem to Samaria. And it's difficult to tell where certain colloquialisms originated. And for example, God is a sense of humor. We say that, I wonder if it didn't originate right here. As they have a good chuckle about that time that uh, John wanted to kill everybody and now he's here to usher them into the kingdom of Christ. They're here to use the keys of the kingdom that were given to Peter to open it up to these same people. But the beauty of God's providence and the revival amongst the Samaritans is about to be overshadowed just temporarily by a thick, dark cloud named Simon. Pick up again in verse 18. Now when Simon saw that the Spirit was bestowed through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give this authority to me as well, so that everyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you, because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money? You have no part or portion in this matter, for your heart's not right before God. Therefore repent of this wickedness of yours, and pray that the Lord, if possible the intention of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bondage of iniquity. But Simon answered and said, Pray to the Lord for me yourselves, so that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. Now there are a number of remaining observations that we need to draw from this account. For these, we're going to enumerate them for the sake of organizing our thoughts. So, observation number one. Simon, without question, never savingly believed. It's exceedingly obvious. Uh, First off, Simon had the same kind of spurious faith that those who, quote, according to John 2, believed in Christ's name had. If you remember that account right after saying they believed in the name of Jesus, Jesus was not entrusting himself to them because he knew what was in them. Jesus entrusts himself fully to all his sheep. He didn't entrust himself to them because they weren't his sheep. And we know that this is true, first off, because Simon tries to purchase the Holy Spirit of God. He tries to buy him, to which Peter responds with a sentiment of, and this is the sentiment, to hell with you and your money. May your silver perish with you. Here he must also be speaking of eternal judgment because this is the consequences of rebellion against an eternal God because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. 
Now, one of the things that we learn from this is that there are certain statements and sentiments that are expressed by people that without question identify someone as an unbeliever. Now, that's not to say that an actual believer can't say something awful. We can. But we don't say stuff like this. Okay, fundamental to our faith is that God and his blessings come by faith, not as a result of a commercial exchange. Consider Isaiah, who speaks to this beautifully, and speaking here uh, figuratively of salvation. He says in Isaiah 55, 1, Everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and you who have no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without cost. This is especially fundamental to the Christian faith. We don't care what's in your bank account. This is about God giving to you his blessings. Not about you paying money to get something from him. Nobody who even has a base understanding of salvation would ever think of the Holy Spirit in these terms. Simon conceives of procuring the Holy Spirit of God as being part and parcel to the way that a man would procure a prostitute. That is not hyperbole. That is not an exaggeration. And that is why Peter is so upset, and that is why he has stated what is inevitably true as a consequence of this revelation. Verse 23, I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bondage of iniquity. Not that you were, that you are. Yes, gloriously, if the Son has made you free, you are free indeed. But the Son has not made him free, therefore he is still every bit the slave. And that's why he just tried to buy the third person of the Trinity. Furthermore, consider Simon's response to Peter's rebuke. Here's Peter again, verses 22 through 24. Therefore, repent of this wickedness of yours and pray that the Lord, if possible, may forgive the intention of your heart, for I see that you're in the gall of bitterness and in the bondage of iniquity. But Simon answered and said, pray to the Lord for me yourselves so that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. Now, let me ask you, If a Christian is told and understands that they need to repent and be forgiven in the context of the Christian life, do they shirk the responsibility for that onto somebody else? No, they don't because they have a personal relationship with the Lord through the blood of Jesus. They may go directly to him because there's one mediator between God and man, and it's Christ. So perhaps Simon Magnus is also the progenitor of the Roman Catholic heresy of confessing your sins to a priest and having him mediate for you instead of Jesus. Now, an important question here arises, and that is, why didn't Philip see this coming? And the answer to this is illuminating. The text clearly states that Simon became, for however long, even a follower of Philip. He was going after him. He was with him. This wasn't just a prayer that he prayed, a profession that he made, and then Simon was gone. He was with the believers. So why did it require Peter and John to flush this pretender out? Is it because Philip lacks discernment? Given the description that he's full of the Spirit, I doubt that. Is it because Peter really was the first pope, and so he alone had the power to discern these things? No, it was because Philip did not uh, possess and embody the idol that revealed Simon's idolatry. Peter and John, in his mind, did. Philip had the power of the Spirit, but he did not have the power to confer the Spirit upon whom he chose in keeping with the will of God 
And that is what the Magus was really after. Thus, when Simon saw that the Spirit was bestowed through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying what? Give this authority to me as well, so that everyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Spirit. Again, Simon is already a false teacher and a false messiah. What he is after here is the power to make his messianic pretensions a reality. He understands that Philip has great power. But the far greater power belongs to the one who can create and control an army of Philips, and that is the objective, to be able to raise them from nothing. Again, give this authority to me as well, so that everyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit, and thus manifest this strange and incredible power in service of God, not not on your life, in service of Simon. Simon doesn't want what Philip has. Simon doesn't have what Philip has, but through smoke and mirrors and sleight of hand, he's not that far from the appearance of it. He stayed up, watched late-night TV, and he bought the uh, professional magician's kit, and he has the hat with a little collapsible compartment to hide the bunny in, and that's close enough to get the job done. But to become a real, live conduit of heaven's power, to be able to raise up magi after him in his name, imbued with a capacity for profound expressions of divinity, this will make Simon's followers gods, and it will make Simon the great God-maker. He will become the Zeus to his many demigod children. If Simon were able to grasp the power that he here seeks, he will conquer the world. Now, of course, none of this works this way. The apostles are used by the Spirit. They are not the ones who use him. But because Simon is a son of the devil, he sees this as he sees everything else in dollars and cents as a transaction. Now, seeing false converts for what they are often just takes time and the occurrence of the right opportunity. Simon lusted after fame and authority And when he perceived the opportunity to gain these things to have arrived, he revealed his true colors. It drew him out. Philip didn't provide that opportunity. The apostles did. Likewise, one may want power in the local church. And so they lay in wait for however long. But when the opportunity to illegitimately take it presents itself, there comes the revelation that they desire control, not Christ. But being that the other people in the church are not soul seers, it required that ostensibly opportune moment. Another in the church pretends to love Jesus, but in time he or she is brought to a crossroads where they must choose between Christ and the idolatry of their own nuclear family manifest in the rejection of their duties fundamental to their role. As husband, as wife, based upon their choice, their character can finally be known. They are flushed out. Another dutifully serves, but always with a desire for influence and honor, and not until they get what they lay in wait for do the fangs come out and that sweet servant of Jesus shows themselves to actually be a devil, and I could go on and on. But Simon has certainly had his moment, and the truth is now known. And if you're sitting here thinking, but I will not be found out, and my pretense will endure, and I can rely upon the social capital that I built in this place to shield me from being found out by the other people in this place, well, perhaps, perhaps you may, except for the fact that it's not going to be men who draw you out. 
That's the variable that you're not accounting for. Yes, we have finite and limited capacity and understanding, and we can be duped. You can fool us. You cannot fool God, and he delights in drawing you out. And so when the Almighty means to, it's going to happen. Better for you to come clean before he makes you. Point number two, observation number two. Simon is proof positive that salvation is not formulaic. Now, I'm about to give you a metaphor that might unintentionally communicate something I don't intend to communicate, so let me just be very honest with you. I cannot math. Okay, I can't do math. If uh, I come to a conclusion, my children know full well to go and consult a calculator, especially if it's a matter of significance, so I don't want to give you the wrong impression. I, I can't even do basic math. Um, well, anyhow. So, let that be known. I do, though, understand something of the basic paradigm and, say, the nature of an equation. So A would represent an integer that I could input, and B then would be another integer that I could input, and then A plus B equals C uh, would really be considered, or C would rather really be considered the obligation of my combination of both A and B. A plus B equals C necessarily. C must be the sum of A and B. And if I put in the right things, then I can totally predict the outcome. That's clearly not the way that it works in salvation, so long as the inputs are being inputted by men. Ergo, Simon, here's the gospel preached by Philip. We'll call this A. Okay? Here's the gospel. Simon then professes faith. He says, I believe. And then he walks the aisle. And then at the end of the aisle, Philip is waiting behind the pulpit, and he signs and dates the inside cover of Simon's Bible. This is the day Simon got saved. Here's the date. We'll call this B. But then we're still adding integers here, and that's water baptism is the next one. Verses 12 and 13. But when they believed, Philip preaching the good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were being baptized, men and women alike. Even Simon himself believed. This is C. That's a big deal. But wait, there's more. And after being baptized, he continued on with Philip. And as he observed signs and great miracles taking place, he was constantly amazed. Simon even became, for however long a time, a regular attender. Oh, he wasn't one of these get your ticket to heaven punched and never see him again types. Love him and leave him. Oh, as far as anybody knew, he was being discipled. And we will call this D. But as it turns out, even A plus B plus C plus D does not equal S for salvation. Simon, as Peter says, is going to take his money and go to hell because God is not obligated by any process or by the promises or perceptions of men. Now, if you were saved on such and such day and that date is written in your Bible, that is a sweet thing to remember and that is a sweet way to remember it. It's not my point here to say anything other than that. My point is to tell you that the ink on that page does not save you, nor the pronouncement of the pastor who wrote that date down, nor the water that you were dunked in, nor the fact that your family was there to see it, and everybody remembers it. None of that means you have Christ. And without Christ, you're damned. 
So repent and believe the gospel today instead of trusting in the empty words you spoke, the empty promises that were made to you by somebody else, claiming that they have the authority to ensure for you that you have what they cannot give to you that produced no change, no real change. You may have done a great job of convincing other people. But inside your heart still raged in rebellion against the Lord. Turn to Christ and trust only His finished work today. Not any of that stuff. He's not obligated by your past experiences to save you. And indeed, He won't. He saves by virtue of His past experience on the cross. And He uses your faith to apply that to you. That's it. That's the whole thing. Observation number three. Chase the salvation of all, but don't sacrifice regeneration to chase the salvation of some celebrity. Did you hear that Kanye got saved? Did you hear that Shia LaBeouf got saved? Did you hear that Simon Magus, with all his followers, got saved? Now, our society, like theirs, idolizes celebrities Many Christians are no better, and you can see this when this kind of a profession is made. Now, is Kanye West a Christian? I don't know. I sincerely hope that he is. I can say that it didn't bode well when right after he made that profession of faith, the arch-heretic of our age went and swooped him up, which would be Joel Osteen. Maybe he is. He was brought into the faith, ostensibly, by a genuine believer, a faithful pastor. I hope that he is. But I can tell you this, Christ does not need him. In the same way that he didn't need Simon Magus. But Simon had all those followers. And think about how his influence could have been used to then make those followers followers of Christ. You know, as it turns out, Jesus is pretty good at making followers of his own on his own. After walking out of that tomb on the third day and conquering the world for the last 20 centuries, Jesus doesn't need any celebrity endorsements. So be very careful about hastily hitching Christ's wagon to celebrities who profess faith because if they prove to be false converts later, you will have put them in a position to harm the testimony of Christ. When I was a little boy, I recall my pastor speaking about this and the example that he used was Larry Flint who uh, touched upon Christianity the way that a rock touches upon the surface of the water before skipping to somewhere else. But for that 10 glorious minutes, every Christian who had any kind of a platform, was praising the Lord for what he'd done in Larry Flint. Larry Flint, by the way, was the uh, founder of Hustler magazine, a pornographic magazine, a filthy and vile man who went right back to being filthy and vile. Like I say, so to speak, about 10 minutes after making that profession. Don't do that. Don't give the world the impression that we need them and their influence. Now God does sometimes save the Simons and the Kanyes of the world. But he saves the Ethiopian eunuchs too. And their salvation isn't any less praiseworthy. Not at all. And we will see the Ethiopian eunuch get saved next week. He will treasure what Simon has cast aside. Christ is his own celebrity. And he's really, really good at being a celebrity. Now, in conclusion, let's try to insert ourselves into this narrative. 
Are we like the protagonist, Philip? Or are we the antagonist, Simon? One of the unique aspects of Christianity is that we who are converted have all been both. I've been the villain. I now, I suppose, am the protagonist in a sense. But the only reason that I am no longer the antagonist is because of the grace of the great protagonist who is Christ. Only one celebrity, only one hero. And it's Jesus. And the examples that you see of men like Philip are all just reflections of him. Not of anything that was inside of Philip. And so, if you are here under false pretenses, have the opportunity yet again this afternoon to let the Lord shine a light into your soul and reveal what you have been hiding. Turn to Christ. Trust Him. Not anything else. It is that simple. Christian doctrine is very complex. But what is necessary to know in order to be saved is so simple that a child can do it. And that is what eludes Simon with all his worldly wisdom. And I pray that it will come to you. Simply trust. That's it. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your grace today and being able to open your word and learn what we have from this testimony. The testimony of Philip on the positive side and the testimony of Simon on the negative side, but ultimately the testimony of how you preserve the purity of your church in keeping this man out. We thank you for the faith that binds us together. We thank you that the souls that we're reading about here, they are our brothers and sisters. We praise you and we thank you for all these things. In Jesus' name, amen. Hi there, this is Austin Hetzler, the pastor of Christ the Rock Church of Illyria, Ohio. We at Christ the Rock are humbled and grateful to be a part of your sanctification today as you listen to this sermon. But at the same time, we want to encourage you to be a member of a good local church and not to allow online sermons to replace the local church and to benefit from the life of that church and to give your spiritual gifts back to that church. Having said that, our website is www.christrockchurch.com. If you go there, you can find sermons, blogs, and other resources as well as our location and service times. You can also listen to the sermons on Bible Thumping Wingnut, Podbean, iTunes, Google Play Music, iHeartRadio, Spotify, and Stitcher. I, along with the membership of Christ the Rock Church, pray that this sermon will be a blessing to you.